When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hello, I'm Clive Anderson. Welcome to My Seven Wonders. In ancient times, hanging gardens, great pyramids and other superstructures were celebrated as wonders of the world. And like Days of the Week and Deadly Sins, there were always seven of them. More recent magnificent sevens have included man-made marvels such as Machu Picchu, Taj Mahal, or wonders of nature such as the Grand Canyon and the Great Barrier Reef. But what are the seven wonders you would put on your personal list? That's the question I ask my guests in this podcast, and the guest I'm asking today is the writer and journalist Charles Moore, more formally the Right Honourable Baron Moore of Etchingham. In newspapers and magazines, Lord Moore has enjoyed a distinguished career as a political commentator and columnist, and at different times he's been the editor of The Daily Telegraph, The Sunday Telegraph and The Spectator. In hardcovers, he's published an impressive three-volume authorised biography of Margaret Thatcher. All of which, Charles, gives us a clear enough indication you're well to the right of centre in your political thinking, but I notice you're described as non-affiliated when you're sitting in the House of Lords. Is the uh, modern Conservative Party too centrist for you, or, or too incompetent, <laughs> or what? <laughs> uh, neither of those things. Um, being a working journalist, I think it's better to be not to be under the whip of any party in the Lords. Um, in fact, the whips in the Lords are very light things, but people won't believe that you're uh, saying what you think if you take a party whip. And, you know, it's very important to me to be able to say what I think. All right. So you, that allows you to uh, criticise particular policies or particular ministers or whatever. Uh, but, but broadly speaking, uh, would it be fair to say you support the Conservative cause in most instances? Uh, well, uh... Not really. I, I'm very much a conservative, but with a small c. Mm. Um, I suppose you could say I was a Tory in the sense of that's an attitude of mind as opposed to a party thing. Yes, I was going to describe your think of you. I would think of you as a traditionalist. Uh, you, you you tend to stick to the old ways in many things, and I think some of your wonders that we're going to come to in a moment uh, uh, reinforce me in that opinion. <laughs> um, you might be right. Uh, I think you are right, but. I'm also very in favour. One of the reasons I'm very interested in Margaret Thatcher, and we'll come to that, I'm sure, is that uh, she was a great innovator. Mm. And um, so that, that being a traditionist doesn't mean that you can't innovate or that you're against innovation. Yes. Um, I was I was thinking about uh, this uh, readiness to talk to you. I was thinking of a quote that I've always had in my mind that, that G.K. Chesterton said that uh, uh, tradition is the uh, democracy of the dead but in fact what he said was a rather more nuanced thing than that he said you've got to balance tradition uh, with innovation if uh, to, to use your word there um you, you've got to take into account your father's opinion even though he's dead uh, but also uh, uh, the, the, your groom or your servant or your uh, any ordinary person uh, not neglect those views simply because uh, he's, uh, you might consider, uh, not as well educated. I think I'm, I'm, I'm paraphrasing. Yes, his, no, his that's absolutely opinion. right. And uh, Edmund Burke talked of a, um, a compact between the dead, living, and the yet unborn. Uh, and yes, I think that's yes. a good way to look at um, human life. All right. Society. Well, just just so that in case people are listening to this aren't um, completely au fait with you and your life, I'm not going to go through a lot, but you you could describe you. It sounds like you've had quite a a gilded career in a way. You were at Eton, which is one of the top schools. Then you were at uh, Trinity College, Cambridge, and then you pretty rapidly uh, made your way in the world of journalism. Uh, I think you were writing Daily Telegraph leaders when you were about, you know, 22 or something. <laughs> um, I began as a reporter on the Telegraph in 1979, uh, yes. was then briefly a sub and then um, became a leader writer. And then I left for The Spectator in uh, 1982 yeah. um, and became the political columnist there uh, and yeah. then, then the editor. So um, 
there was it, quite a lot of stuff compressed into quite a short time. Sure, and not too much of, you know, knocking on the doorstep with a with a notebook. You, you've no, but well, well, yes, but I did do reporting, and I've, um, thank goodness I did, um, mm. because that is the primary thing about journalism is a story. And yes. since I stopped editing, though I've mainly done columns, I've done the odd big story, which I find extremely satisfying, and that is the best. That is the sort of that is the heart of it. Right. Okay. Well, I'm not. I don't want to foreshadow too much that's going to emerge, and mm. I hope in your wonders. But your, uh, what's your first wonder of the world that you're going to uh, introduce to me or to describe to me? Well, I bore in mind that you want it to be personal, and therefore, perhaps this isn't a wonder of the world, but it's certainly a wonder of my world, which is hops. Um, the reason that uh, I think of hops is. First of all, I was a proto-real ale bore when I was uh, a young man. Mm. I'm a bit more of a wine man uh, now. But um, I, um, uh, I also brought up among hops. And so the smell and appearance of them, and indeed the architecture of where I live in Sussex and where I was brought up, are very much uh, part of that. I, um, I'm just old enough yeah. to remember the last hop picking on our farm. Um, and it was the last uh, sort of communal activity of the village, really, in agricultural terms. So what seemed to me at the... T- probably it was only 20 people, but it seemed a vast crowd of people at the time picking the hops mm. uh, in what they call hop gardens. Uh, and this I remember. And hops, of course, the purpose of them is... Uh, this purpose is to um, flavour beer uh, and also to... as a natural preservative. And so I'm very always very fascinated by how um, something that grows um, can be turned into something industrial which um, produces pleasure and this is obviously true of grapes but with hops they're not intrinsic to beer like grapes are intrinsic to wine they are they're, they're, they're sort of brought in as an ad- additional to beer the beer used to be produced without hops but but hops mm. add the taste um, and and the preservation and so there's this rather marvelous sort of ecology of ho- of the hop or the hops i should yeah. say <laughs> <laughs> Well, I think it was the case that uh, there was a time when what was called ale uh, didn't have hops in it, and uh, hops made it into beer. I think the terms have got intermingled now, and they were a bit of an innovation a few centuries ago, and it was yes. first resisted a bit in Britain uh, or in England. That what's this foreign thing? But it's been a few centuries. Yes, I think now. they came from came from Germany originally. Um, they they're very attractive to look at, um, both when dried and when growing. And the dried bit's interesting because, of course, that's what has to happen to them when they're pressed and uh, um, made ready for their use. But what it means is that a lot of people have hops in their house um, mm. dried, and they're very decorative in that form. Oh, I didn't and they, know and that. And they, yeah. they, they twist. Um, yes. And indeed, the word um, people used to use for how you made them grow in a twisted way was twiddle, which I think then spread to wider, uh, yes. wider currency. Right. So you twiddled the hops. Well, when you talk about hop picking, of course, that used to have a very established uh, thing in its way. Um, people from London, you know, the East End of London used to have it. It was almost a holiday for them, though it was a, a working holiday, quite hard working holiday to go down to Kent or wherever else and uh, live in a caravan for a couple of weeks and uh, pick hops. Is, is that what you're talking about? Your, the 20 people? Um, actually, no, because there were two two types of hop picking. One was Lots and lots of little farms like ours had hop gardens and they would just use local labour. But then there were the bigger hop gardens where they would use the type of labour you described. And this was really a lot of people sometimes. Mm. And it was a great great thing for East End people. And though their conditions were um, often pretty bad, on the whole, the record of the hop gardens and that hop picking is was of pleasure because, I mean, very hard work, but it was a sort of like a holiday, as you say. And... It meant that people met one another, they fell in love with one another, they drank together, um, they had their sort of hop uh, ceremonies and uh, songs, um, and it was a great encounter with the countryside for people who uh, were poor and urban. So I think it had a great effect, um, and it even had its own currency because you got paid, you often didn't get paid in money, you got paid in hop tokens um, mm. with the stamp of the farmer and then you would take the token off and it was w- worth currency. They still exist. I mean, you can't be used anymore, but you can yeah. still find them. And um, you would go into a pub or whatever and produce your hop token and off you went. 
Mm, I, wonder, I wonder if that was a good system. Yeah, did you get more or less money by doing that? This crops up in a couple of George Orwell novels. Uh, he, he, yes. he obviously went on one of these uh, hot-picking ex- expeditions as an observer and, a, and really reflecting on the, the harshness of life for people uh, doing this as a break from East End life. That's right, and I bet he was right. But, uh, but I think it's also the case that there was an excitement in, in hot-picking for the people who picked the hops and a communal... Mm aspect. And uh, all I remember, actually remember personally, is the excitement of the village in the, yes. in the activity. It's the nearest thing to the, the grape harvest in a Mediterranean country. Or indeed, now, of course, we have grape harvest in, uh, in Britain. But, uh, yes, probably fewer um, uh, yeah. hops, more, more grapes. Um, yeah. But you, um, you, you said this, that you remember the last one. So has it, has it gone now? Is it a mechanical thing uh, now? Well, well, first of all, it's mechanical. But secondly, the system's changed. So um, it's much more internationally competitive and Britain has lost out. And all little farms had what they called a hop quota. And you could sell your quota. And these were brought up by the big uh, brewers like Whitbread or something and consolidated. So this idea of there being little hop gardens all over the place, all in, in hundreds and hundreds of farms in Kent and Sussex, uh, that's mm. all come to an end. But the architecture is still there because the oast houses, which are a very apparent feature of with their mm. white cowls, um, uh, remain and tend to be converted but I just remember them being used to dry the press and then dry the hops and the, the hot air would come up through the hops and out of the cowl, hence yeah. the shape As a brewery, hops are yeah, hugely important to uh, a lot of what we, uh, what we produce here and uh, I think over the years people have got used to the fact there have been so many hops that, uh, that get released and uh, new hops being released all the time you know, really, if you look at since 2014... What, what's your second wonder? Well, I said Fleet Street because um, I was in Fleet Street, actually physically Fleet Street when I began as a journalist. And it's very yes. interesting because in those days, um, as with so many other things, an activity would take place in one place, like Covent Garden Vegetable Market or um, uh, the City of London, indeed, uh, with, with money and banking and so on. Um, and therefore, they had a very strong atmosphere of their own, which largely doesn't exist now in, in most trades because they're dispersed and because of delivery and the Internet and so on. And so there I was in this actual Fleet Street, um, which had been occupied by printers for more than 200 years already by the time um, I got there. So you mm-hmm. could go to the pub, which Dr. Johnson went to, and you could feel the, se- the sense of a sort of literary and journalistic tradition and an actual industrial tradition. Because the print shop yes. was inside the office. So you, at the back of the office would be all our hot metal printing, which was Victorian and was still going on 100% when I was there. Um, yes, and I, I remember because I, I was um, not in Fleet Street, except I was a, a barrister. So with the, the temple abuts onto Fleet Street. So once you walk yeah. into it, there was the, the Daily Telegraph building, the Daily Express building, uh, the Daily Mail had uh, papers coming out the back and the Evening Standard. And, and there were others who'd gone just a little bit away um and of course the whole style of that as you're coming to you know people would drink in pubs together having filed their copy at uh, i don't know 12 12 they go off to lunch which uh, again i don't think it uh, works like that anymore does it in journalism yes no i remember people like you i don't think i ha- I, I don't think i met you in a, in a in a bar at the time Clyde, but i did i used to see barristers in elvino for example um, yes, uh, there was a lot of them, and then we went to a terrible pub um, called the King King and Keys, just beside the Telegraph, where it, it was sort of hell, really. Um, and um, uh, and the atmosphere was very, very different. There was so much drinking, and um, almost in reporting, not so much in features, almost a hundred percent male. Yes, um, and um, you probably didn't file your copy at twelve noon. Actually, you probably hadn't done anything by 12 noon um, and then you would drink at lunch and then you would start filing when you had drunk quite a lot and then you would yeah. go and drink again um, in the early evening when you had filed and sometimes you were going to check your copy at the last minute as well so then you drink again and then go back in again yes. um, so you could easily work quite hard and still be drinking for about five hours a day I would say or four 
Mm. Well, old old people sometimes think the world is going to the dogs because of the way young people behave. But I think any young person hearing about this for the first time, and it wouldn't just apply to journalism either. Lots of businesses, trades, uh, industries seem to operate on this basis that you you squeezed in a bit of work between a, <laughs> a long lunch or an early evening drink, which would be... I mean, not on moral grounds exactly, but sort of unimaginable on productivity grounds uh, today. You, yes, you, you, yes. I mean, I mean, there were some very lazy people, but it's surprising how much got done. But I mean, your phrase "going to the dogs" was correct. Um, it was going to the dogs. It couldn't last much longer, and we could all see that um, because papers that were great market leaders, like the Daily Telegraph, were not actually making money because of the um, so-called Spanish practices and overmanning and the refusal to change to new technology. Mm. And in came Mrs. Thatcher and changed the law and the technology changed, um, trade union law and the technology changed. And so by the middle of the 1980s, Fleet Street as a physical entity was was over, really. Um, mm. So I saw the last of this and it, I, I absolutely loved it because I was new and it was exciting. But I mean, it was a boulevard of broken dreams and um, it was an immense number of dotty and hopeless people and the practices were quite extraordinary and the printers were absolutely outrageous um, because they would... You, they would. I actually remember seeing a notice in the print shop of the Telegraph, in you know, the, at the back, which said, "Um, any member having a son, um, or nephew wishing to have a job should apply to X." Um, and so it was a completely hereditary trade, and hundred percent, hundred percent male, and sort of uh, Cockney, and they were the aristocracy of the working class, really, and they would. Um, because they worked it out to their advantage, they were very clever and amusing people, by the way. They would um, frequently not be there, and they'd run whole other firm, um, things like minicab firms and that sort of thing, mm. in the very ample spare time they negotiated for themselves. And sometimes they would down tools in the middle of the night, and the only way they could be persuaded to go back to work and print was if the management came onto the shop floor, which you could only do with their permission, with suitcases full of money, cash. And they would then <laughs> open the um, suitcases and hand out tenors, and they'd all go back to work. Um, yes. And um, so obviously this couldn't really go on much longer. <laughs> <laughs> well, I suppose that uh, yet it's a funny world that you're describing. I suppose at one end there's uh, um, the, the aristocracy and their sons going to Eton, going to, if I may say so, Cambridge, Oxford. And at the other end, you've got the printers operating a very similar system, uh, hereditary principle as well. So it's, uh, I would so say the printers were more hereditary than, <laughs> than us journalists. But um, what was very, the other thing that was very striking, and I I'm interested that I could just see the last of this, was that the people running everything, particularly the Telegraph, because they tend to be quite old, had all been in the war. Um, and so they had a very different... Bill mm. Deeds was my editor who'd won the MC in the war. And um, mm. and sometimes there were quite old people walking around working in the Telegraph. And if you want, you couldn't work out what they were doing. I remember asking, they said, um, why is this chap have this office? He doesn't seem to do anything. And they said, well, he was one of the few. Um, meaning the uh, uh, the RAF, the RAF. and they sort yes. of got a job for life in a way because of that, and um, yeah. and so that atmosphere, um, which is very very unlike modern life, because there was a sense of sort of what you were owed because of something you'd done, rather than um, just getting through um, mm. your normal work, was very important yeah. and in some ways attractive, and in some ways quite impossible because there was people who were absolutely incompetent. I suppose the person who really cut through in Fleet Street terms was Rupert Murdoch because he built a, a whole new printing place uh, in Wapping, um, sort of on the sly, uh, and suddenly uh, everything got sh switched over there before anybody could prevent it happening, and that cut through all these Spanish practices, as you're, you're, you call you're, them. You're quite right, and um, it was one of the great failures of my trade not to be too lazy to work out what Murdoch was up to. He said he was uh, put the print in to produce a new evening paper, and mm. we were very idle about inquiring. And we actually he he managed to pull off this ambush, in which nobody knew until the weekend it happened, that it was happening. And what it was mm. was, was he's moving the entire operation to Wapping, s sacking all the printers and using um, w workers from different uh, unions to come in and mm. work the computers. And there was this tremendous siege and violence and all of it, but he won. And though it was unpleasant, I'm very glad he did win because otherwise journalism would not have print journalism would not have survived. Uh, well, I, I take yes, you say you're you're glad you're glad now. Obviously, I wonder at the time were you rather scared by this? Did you think 
oh no, what's this this Australian? As I think he was at that point. Um, what's he going to? Is he going to you know disrupt everything so much that the whole well, thing I was, comes crashing I was, down? I was against Mr. Murdoch in some ways. Uh, for example, his hostility to the monarchy, but. Um, I was in favour of very much, personally, I was very much in favour of him doing this because it did seem to me quite ridiculous that you couldn't modernise in the, um, uh, the the union practices and the technology. So actually, I wasn't always a great admirer of the papers he produced, but I was a great admirer of his courage in doing this. But you're right, of course, a lot of people were very, very anxious and thought that here's this Australian um, interloper. But actually, mm. you had to have some such interloper, I think, Right. OK. Not everybody, um, people who are not involved in journalism, they're not going to immediately applaud the idea of how wonderful Fleet Street is, because whatever its achievements in reporting things, undercovering scandals, so forth, especially in the last few years, it's become very, very unpopular because of the, you know, phone hacking and the tittle-tattle, the gossip, the, the intrusion, uh, whether it's the Leveson report or or anybody, you know, Meghan Markle complaining about it. Everybody has got a, a complaint about, oh, that story in the papers, they, they misquoted me, uh, they've lied about me, they got that wrong. Uh, do, you, do you ever worry about that? Because um, American papers, which I would say probably a bit duller than our newspapers, but they're a bit stronger on things like fact-checking and getting things, you know, more accurate. Do, do you ever worry about that from uh, that point of view? Uh, yes, of course, because... Um uh, uh, absolutely, and and some papers are n- notorious for that. But I think the power of an interest in newspapers does fundamentally rely on their being true. On their being true. I mean, if they really weren't true, like uh, the Sunday Sport really isn't true, then um, uh, um, there just is no point in them. So yeah. the 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 reason um, powerful and famous people fear the press is not fundamentally because it's inaccurate, but because it's accurate. That's mm. what's really uh, worrying to them. Um, however, the, that's no defence for the inaccuracy and the bias, and they do exist and always have. Mm. It's a sort of pile-on when somebody decides somebody's unpopular, then suddenly there's loads of stories and uh, their best yes, friend's neighbour is found to, to give some quotes. Certainly, to, is, a, certainly yeah. is a pile-on, but actually because Fleet Street is politically plural and lots of different owners and things, they usually don't all pile on the same person in the same way. There's usual, mm. usually a counter to, um, in one paper to what's some atrocity committed in another. A street that's never quiet within, but as another day dawns, outwardly comes to life. Fleet Street, famously steeped in the history of journalism, but no longer actual journalists. Now, the last two journalists working on the street are being made redundant, marking the end of an era. It all started in a house near this spot in 1702. And let's go on to your third um, a wonder, which if I, if I may mention what it is, because uh, this does fit in with a, perhaps a traditionalist view of the world. Uh, you've put hunting as a wonder of the world. Yes, and by hunting, I mean I, I don't mean it in the American sense, including shooting, though I'm, uh, I enjoy shooting as well. I mean um, yeah. uh, the hunting, um, ideally, of live quarry by uh, hounds. Um, right. And, um, and um, of course, in most circumstances, that's not allowed in, in Britain today, though it is allowed in Ireland. Um, uh, but um, so now there's trail hunting where you, where you follow a trail, hounds follow a trail, and it yeah. tries to replicate uh, hunting, which it does quite successfully, actually. Um, but it, of course, not much use to anybody because um, the whole point was to control the fox population without exterminating it. Um, but, yeah, so so that's what I'm talking about. Usually followed on horseback, but it doesn't have to be. So so in the main, if I've got a picture in my mind of uh, a group of people on horseback in, uh, I'm going to say they're in red outfits, but they're called pink, aren't they? Pink uh, jackets, um, uh, a pack of hounds, and somewhere in the distance a fox, which is eventually going to be uh, chased down and um, and put to death. That's That's a... That's the sort of the picture I've got of what hunting is. You mean? Uh, yes, I mean there wouldn't necessarily be red coats, and indeed, even in hunts which have red coats, most people don't wear red coats. But yes, um, all right. Uh, and um, uh, and as I say, often hunting takes place on foot um, in hill packs, for example, in Wales and 
uh, bits of the north and so on, and 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 indeed Beagling and um, Basset Hounds and Mink and all the rest. It's a very complicated story. Fascinating. Yes. One reason I like it so much is it's so complicated. Um, uh, but yes, it's a it's it's a tradition of uh, hunting is a traditional set of traditions, um, which was very alive until the ban and very good mix of people in in rural society. Um, and had all sorts of benefits. And to some extent, those benefits have survived the ban because trail hunting still allows a lot of the pleasure and the communal aspects. But the sort of fundamental and beautiful thing about hunting is that you are getting um, one, two sets of animals, hounds and, and sometimes horses, who are sort of domesticated, and they're, in, they're acting with a wild animal, usually a fox, uh, sometimes a deer, um, and they're doing the hounds are doing what they would naturally wish to do, which is chase and catch the fox, mm. um, and that d- provides a service because you need to keep foxes under control, and it provides a pleasure because you've got the adventure of the chase, and this is sort of understood in absolutely all human societies until the 21st century, which seems to have forgotten it, um, in all human societies and at all times. Mm. So um, right back to very early wall paintings and so on, you see. The hunt, and what you see is not only the hunt because you want to hunt to live to eat the what you kill, but also, um, which by the way you wouldn't want to eat foxes, um, uh, uh, but also because um, the chase is a a contest of not exactly a contest, but an enactment of human courage and uh, excitement and um, and a way of getting to know the country and so on. So it's a a very important part of um, I'd say of human civilization. Well, uh, of course, there's another group of people we have to put in the picture of the horses and the hounds and the uh, men and women on top of the horses. There's also the hunt saboteurs, which became yes. a, uh, an important element in the in the picture of a Boxing Day hunt or, or whatever. So you <laughs> must you must be aware of the arguments which would, would have been put to you repeatedly in discussions, but also actually out in the field that this is um, this is an enjoyment that you're getting through. What is essentially cruelty to animals to be yes, chasing well, after I, them and putting I'm, them to death? I understand that argument. And, of course, if I thought it was true, I wouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, and um, I think it's quite easy to show to people who wish to listen that um, uh, hunting is no more cruel than any other form of uh, killing an animal and much less cruel than most forms. Um and since it's generally recognised, they're not universally recognised, that there are circumstances in which you should kill animals, um, I don't see it as any moral problem at all, providing it's properly conducted. And um, hunting's always been good at that because it has its own rules, which it thinks carefully about. Um, one of the things that's constantly alleged by anti-hunting people is that the fox is, quote, torn apart live. Mm-hmm. If that were true, I would not approve of it. It's torn apart dead. What happens, I watched it many times before the ban, is that um, the lead hound jumps on the fox and immediately breaks the back of his neck with its teeth. And it takes five seconds to die. Mm. And then it's torn apart dead because hounds like tearing the quarry apart. Uh, But that's not a pretty sight, but it's not cruel. It's dead. Yeah, well, I, I, I... I take what you say about that, but that's a that's a very particular issue as to whether the tearing happens before or after. No, no, the, it's not, but it's not yeah. a technicality. No, it's not a technicality mm. because it's a question of the cruelty. Yeah. If 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 the death is instantaneous, you see, it's almost impossible to wound uh, a fox when you but when you hunt them with hounds, it, you can easily wound a fox when you shoot, and it happens a great deal. Um, mm. And they can crawl away, and they can die in agony days later. Um, you can't. It's almost unheard of to, for hounds to wound a fox. There are normally about 30 hounds when they w- were hunting foxes, and um, each hound is bigger than one fox. So mm. when 30 hounds are on a fox, it's dead, bang. And um, there's no question of it sort of limping off and struggling on in a miserable existence. Uh, so it's simply not the case that it's, um, uh, the act of killing it is cruel. Well, I, I, I'll put these argu- an argument I'm sure you've heard before. There's a whole range of things that have been traditionally done with animals uh, around the world, but in, certainly in this country, whether it's tying a bear and setting dogs yes. on them, or very different, rat- I, I, taking I, I, tra- yeah, chasing rats around, or, or all those uh, those activities that which were considered normal, and uh, and then the, somebody the, said, "Well, wait yeah. a minute, it's a bit cruel." 
And, and I suppose that's the context of if hunting is, yes, it's gone on for a long while, but isn't it a bit cruel? And the society, at any rate, for the moment, has decided it's too cruel to, uh, to justify. Uh, well, you're right that society is, and it's right to do this, constantly asking what is cruel to animals and what isn't. And the view of that changes over time. So, for example, it seems to me to bait an animal or torment it is clearly uh, cruel um, and, and indeed not allowed. Um, but I'm convinced from long experience that that's not the case uh, with hunting. And I rather suspect what I've, uh, upsets me about uh, saboteurs is that I don't think they want to know. I think they've decided it's wicked for sort of, to some extent, sort of pseudo-theological reasons, a sort of worship, sort of mistaken, misinterpreted worship of nature, and also for political and um, social reasons that they think it represents a sort of hierarchy which is disgusting. Um, mm. uh, and it's posh, blo posh blokes yes, on horses and, trampling and, everywhere. And, yeah. and that's wrong because um, uh, though there are extreme uh, extremes of social privilege and deprivation among those who hunt, that is rather the point. So, um, and you fall off just as hard if you're a duke than if than uh, as if you um, you know unemployed and come from a council house and. Hunting, unlike shooting, everybody who goes on a shoot, basically, you know, a shoot of eight people, um, mm. private shoot, will be um, almost true to say fairly well off. At a hunt, they will be literally everything uh, because it's a sort of fraternity of people mm. who enjoy the sport and many of them who live in the, most of them live in the district and pursue all sorts of avocations and are very educated or totally uneducated or whatever. So it's a, it's a misrepresentation. And it's a mis one of the things that I think is very important to maintain is the difference between country life and town life. I'm not against town life, and I've lived in town quite a long time in my life, but people should respect life in the country, and they should respect, they understand all its traditions that have been established. They can criticise them, but they do need to think about its context, and they should respect the people who know a lot about it. And this is true of, it's not just hunting nowadays, it's attitudes to farming, um, it's attitudes to do what you do with land, um, what you do with trees, um, the uh, what's right and wrong about animals, um, are you, whether you eat them, how you slaughter them, and so on. And um, uh, it's in, relevant to issues about housing and so on. And I think people have become rather intolerant about this because they're not very interested in the facts. They've got a sort of idea in their head which they wish to be confirmed. Um, and country life doesn't have many spokesmen. It's barbaric, it's unnecessary on all the grounds that the supporters profess. And it should be banished um, uh, uh, along with bear baiting, bull baiting, dog fighting, cock fighting, all of which used to be legitimate and lawful sports. It's strange. Um, everybody loves the countryside in Britain. Everybody loves it. Um, most people don't know how it works. They don't understand what goes on. All right, so that's, that's hunting. What's your fourth wonder, if we may? Well, I, I, I thought... Um... I thought about money, and uh, <laughs> I don't mean by that how lovely it is to have a pile of it and uh, all that sort of thing. Um, I'm just very fascinated by what money is, because mm. it's all about, it seems to me, a sort of classic um, thing about the nature of civilization, because it's remarkable the extent to, we, to which we trust it. And we don't completely trust it, as, as inflation is an index of a lack of trust in money, as yes. a matter of fact. But how is it? That we came, we had developed the idea that, you know, what was originally, say, a piece of uh, metal mm. was worth something. And then we developed from that the idea that a piece of paper was worth something. And then we developed from that the idea that an online transaction was worth something. It's the yes. most miraculous, I think, very civilized thing in which we sort of, we trust one another enough to have a common terms, rather like a common language. Yeah. We, 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 um, we, we accept a currency and we say, OK, I'm paid 20,000 a year and, and I accept that that's what I'm getting. Um, and, um, and in turn, I will pay X for a, a, a amount for it at a shop. And people believe that. And of course, civilization very quickly collapses, as it did in Weimar, Germany, if people don't believe that anymore. So mm -hmm. you have runs on banks or you have hyperinflation. Um, and we've got a bit near to that in recent years when people have somehow misunderstood um, or got frightened about money. And um, 
it's absolutely a massive task of politicians and bankers and civilization generally to maintain trust in money. And all the words that relate to money are moral words like value, for example, mm -hmm. the word value um, and uh, um, equity, uh, uh, those sort of things. Um, it, it, it's the actually is when it says money is what makes the world go round. This is true. And um, it's a very clever thing. And um, we take it for granted. Perhaps it's good that we do, because otherwise we'd be really terrified. Mm. Well, I suppose it, um, we can see how it follows in degrees. You start with people you know, uh, bartering and swapping things. Then yes. one of the things they swap is gold or silver, which is valuable and transportable and acceptable. The key yeah. step, I suppose, in what you're saying is that at some point they say, well, it's a bit of a bore to keep carrying the gold around. So a piece of paper says, I promise to give you some gold or give you some silver. That'll do, won't it? And then, of course, when we enter the Internet age, uh, it's now just a click on a on a computer screen. But of course, it very nearly did come to an end with that monetary crisis where uh, because of, uh, I don't know, what, whatever they were, the, the dodgy yes, well, uh, I mean, mortgages. A bond, a bond, for example, is a promise to pay. Yeah. Um, and therefore, if um, that promise is broken on, on any scale, uh, nobody wants any bonds anymore. And um, you've, and if you're not careful, you, you go back to barter. So yeah. um, you, you need to build these more complicated instruments. It's a natural part of being a complicated civilization, but it's dangerous. And um, uh, people need to think about that. One thing that money also reflects, which I find fascinating, is authority. That's to say, who's the boss? And in that famous moment in the New Testament, when they uh, bring the tribute money to, see, to Jesus, mm. um, and they say, uh, who's, um, what should we do with this? Mm. Um, uh, he holds up the coin and he says, whose image and superscription is it? Mm. Um, and they say Caesar's. And he, then he says, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the th things that are God, God's. Mm. And um, that's a sort of statement about political power and authority um, and its limitations and its importance. Um, and uh, that's why um, usually on a coin or a note, the authority is represented. Um, yeah. Uh, the, the the central bank and the and the sovereign um and crypto is a fascinating attempt to sort of get rid of that i think it's a bit like icarus flying too high i think it's um actually extremely dangerous um yes. because it, it, the confidence can collapse even more readily than confidence in a conventional currency and then you're up the spout well, we don't know when people are going to be listening to this. Crypto might be either up or, or down <laughs> at the at a given time. But it's what you're, uh, part of what you're saying really is that because money is, facilitates a system, it facilitates capitalism or even more fundamentally trade uh, around the world. That's that's what where the benefit lies in having huge. money and its yeah, various absolutely variants. Absolutely huge because it can count for almost, in almost any transaction. Whereas mm. the, obviously the great um, restriction of barter is lugging it around and whether it's relevant. So, you know, I may not mm. want grapes in return for iron, let's mm. say. Um, yeah. And you know, then you have to. And so so um, absolutely. It's a I mean, it is absolutely. Mar that's why it's a wonder of the world. And like most wonders, it has a certain fragility. Yeah, I suppose it does. <clears throat> the fact that you've included that as one of your wonders of the world, I, you, you make a good case for it, but it does mark you out as somebody on the right of politics rather than left because uh, the, on the other side, people tend to see the uh, the horrors of it when there's too much accumulation of money and wealth amongst sm a no, small well, number no, I of people. It does work. No, I, yeah, well, that, they're right about that, by the way. I'm not in favour of um, uh, um, a huge accumulation. I don't particularly mind huge accumulation. I, I think it's very bad if that's... Um, if that's if wealth is inadequately distributed, mm. I don't think governments are very good at distributing. I think it's better in a free market economy. It distributes wide, widely by natural processes. But I absolutely, uh, um, you know, agree with the great Adam Smith doctrine about no two men of the same trade are ever gathered together but to conspire against the public. Um, yes. And and therefore, um, you you uh, having um, the freest forms of currency will tend to make it easier for each individual human being. So I, I would have thought the left would um, be equally uh, believing in the, um, the the wonder of money, but I think they have an illusion about how the state can best direct the mm. use of money. That's what we well, I, I, 
I'd put it in your simplest form, I suppose the state could be there as a counterbalance to the accumulation of money. It can be by perfectly proper means, but at you know, different times it's because oil was found on your land or you invented a computer or your electric car uh, got, got away. And there are people with vast sums of money, some of whom go around the world uh, building libraries or seeking a cure for malaria, but others don't. They just buy another yacht and... and uh, pass it on to their yes, friends well, and family. Yes, well, in my view, there's no necessary virtue and no necessary vice in being rich. You may or may not be a good or bad person, just as in any other walk of life. Um, yeah. So I don't think we should worship people with money, but ni- n- neither do I think we should um, automatically denigrate them. I, I just want to raise another issue, which I think is interrelated to this, the, the benefits of the growth of economy and um, industrialization, uh, agriculture, all these things have come along, all connected with money coming along and allowing that. Uh, but we seem to be, to many people's eyes, to be hurtling towards a sort of doom if the uh, world is uh, consumed by uh, climate change. And I, I mm-hmm. notice that you're a, I don't know how you describe it, though. Sometimes people describe as climate deniers, but I think that's got a pejorative ring. But you're a skeptic that there is a problem about climate change. You're, you're in an organisation um, that, that sort of doubts the uh, the fears that are, are a lot of people um, express. Actually, I'm not, as it happens, I'm not in, in, in that organisation, the, but, the, but I, I was, and I'm very happy that I was. And I just left it because I was too busy. But um, This is the, the Global um, Warming global, Policy. Global Warming Policy Foundation. Yeah. Uh, but it, it, the clue is in the title, actually, because it's policy. What I, I, I'm no scientist. I can't say exactly how serious... Um, uh, the problem of global warming is in a scientific manner. But I think I can, like a lot of people, say something about the policy uh, which governments produce. And I think that um, the policy of net zero specifically is crazy because it's arbitrarily set a date. There's nothing special about 2050. Um, Mm. It's arbitrarily set a date by which X has to be achieved. And that will mean, and it already is meaning, that um, the price of energy shoots up um, an enormous amount of money is wasted, and it makes vulnerable the, those powers who take the provisions most seriously and benefits the ones who don't take it seriously. So essentially, Britain in particular um, has made itself extremely vulnerable to countries like Russia or China, who have no intention of fulfilling the, um, uh, the, the quotas, um, and both of whom are hostile to free society, and indeed in the case of Putin, are busily trying to kill, um, uh, I mean, literally working as hard as he can to kill as many Ukrainians as possible, and um, in the process trying to deprive um, other countries of, of energy. So, um, and we have, he's, one reason he's doing that, he's noticed our vulnerability because we got rid of fossil fuels before we were ready to. I'm not mm. particularly sticking up for fossil fuels. I simply point out that um, you have to have them because of the problem of intermittency until such time as you've solved that problem. And um, uh, the idea that we shouldn't we should get along without them and just suffer is terrifying and totally unnecessary. It's not the total contribution Britain makes to um, carbon emissions is something like 1% of the global total. So if we behaved with what's seen as the most unbelievable virtue and actually reduced our um, carbon production, we would make no difference to the future of the planet, whatever, but we would impoverish ourselves. Um, we've, to some extent, we already have. All right. Well, I I, I understand what you're saying there, but the, uh, the thing about having an arbitrary uh, aim point, a target of reducing uh, emissions or so forth, is if you don't have something like that, then there's always going to be somebody to say, we've had all these sort of policies that well, we won't, we'll raise the tax on this. And as soon as there's any sort of uh, financial problem or a difficult, they say, oh, we won't bother with that for the moment. For the moment, we'll keep having coal. Or for the moment, we'll keep having oil. For the moment. And then it may, and, and some people argue we've already gone past this point. It may be too late and that uh, we're going well, to be... If it's, to... Yeah, well, first of all, it, I think it's very dangerous for them to argue if it's too late, because if it's too late, it's too late. So they might as well shut up. And it's, it's, they've had it. We've had it. But I don't believe that at all. Um, and um, I, I think that um, the, the, the way this will work is that, as has worked throughout industrial civilization, is that... Uh, it can solve problems. Some of those problems are created by industrial civilization, but it will technology will um, uh, find a way, and indeed is finding a way. And indeed, um, wind technology, for example, um, is one of those ways. I'm not, I don't think it's as important as some people say. But uh, so I'm very against what I'm very against, Clive, is not con- 
it's not I am in favour of being worried about the climate. I am very against catas what's the word catastrophizing problems. Yeah. Um, and I and I'm very suspicious of the motives who are people who are so keen to do so. And I notice that what they're trying to do when they do that is acquire more power over the citizen and reduce the freedom of the citizen, and particularly, actually, the poorer citizen, for whom energy is a much higher percentage of their total spending. I think I've taken you off the, the central feature of money, but I thought that was... A, but I, can <laughs> I gather from that you're, you do accept that uh, the human activity has warmed the climate and there is something that we have to address at some time or another? Um, yes, so even there I would be a little bit cautious because I'm not convinced that every aspect of global warming is bad. Um, so, for example, round us in Sussex, southern England, there are now lots of very successful vineyards and they couldn't have existed when uh, it was considered to be colder. That would seem to me in itself a benefit. Now, there will be um, counter-disbenefits for others, but I just make that point because it's not obvious that every single thing is made worse by uh, this phenomenon. Mm. Well, yeah, you made that's a pretty minor benefit, though, if, if well, no, no, it but means it's just that an example. the Sahara... No, no, no. no, I know, but if the Sahara expands, uh, seawater rises, so, you know, parts of London are washed away and the yes, Gulf this, Stream this starts is, working, but, we right, go cold again. Right, but this has happened, this has happened um, before. So I live in an area where um, the sea used to come right up almost to where we live, which is now 10 miles from the sea. And I don't think, um, you know, we've suffered enormous harm because of that. And we've suffered some, we've uh, got some benefits. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, let's let's move on to uh, perhaps a more um, again, it's a traditional thing possibly, but it's a rec- rectories. Uh, you'll, I, I think I grasp the difference between a rectory and a vicarage, and the difference between a rector <laughs> um, and a vicar, but, but that may not be important. It, it, it's the houses that rectors live in, or at any rate, used to live in. Yes, that, uh, both live in and used to live in, but I mean, like old and current ones. I set up this. We live in an old rectory, uh, my wife and I, and. Um, uh, and as you say, there are for various reasons. I won't bore anyone with the difference between rectories and vicarages, but our society embraces all clergy houses of all description and all denominations, mm. presbyteries, um, right. uh, parsonages, deaneries, uh, bishops, Ma- palaces, whatever. Yeah. Uh, of the manse, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and um, the point is that uh, p- particularly, I think, in the Church of England, um, the, the, they have such multiple importance, architectural, horticultural, literary, ecclesiastical, social, agricultural, um, because they're so built into um, communities, particularly rural communities, but actually also to some extent urban ones. And um, because in the old days people didn't have village halls and church halls and that sort of thing, they were also great communal gathering places because the vicar would have you to his party, uh, to a party in his garden, or he would meet parishioners in quite a large room in what tended to be a relatively large house. Um, And their role in the intellectual life of this country is phenomenal because basically the Church of England, unlike a lot of, say, the Catholic Church, had all their, all their, um, all their clergy were educated. So um, slightly stopped doing that now, but it used to be a requirement uh, that um, all vicars could um, understand Latin um, and uh, hold degrees. Um, and... Um, Therefore, what happened was that in a lot of people, a lot of rectors and vicars had families which were very clever and very um, literary and um, sitting often in quite remote places, as it were, making their own entertainment. A classic would be of all the classic one, I suppose, would be the Bronte sisters. Um, oh, yeah. yeah in, a, in a 
a pretty grim uh, vicarage is, is in uh, in um, a pretty cold part of Yorkshire and writing these extraordinary fictions. But it's also true of Jane Austen or Tennyson or Laurence Olivier. I mean, really, the list goes on and on and on. Um, and Laurence Olivier is interesting just because there's also a theatrical overlap, I think, in that clergy performance in church is quite like acting. Sure. And um, so, so if you want the sort of genealogy of how the British particularly the English, um, thought about, uh, well, actually in the Scots, but in a different way, um, thought about things and how they, uh, their creative imaginations, you would need to study these places and what happened in them and how they lived and what they read. Um, and the other thing that's so interesting about them is that people don't know them very well because very rarely are they open to the public. They're not like great houses of the National mm. Trust, but they're jolly interesting and they date, some of them are medieval and many of them are 18th century and Victorian. Um, and... We go on our society, the Rectory Society, goes on visits. Um, you don't have to own, a, be a, it's not an owner's club, by the way, anybody can join. And, um, and it's, it's absolutely fascinating to me and their relationship with the church. And they're often very beautiful and um, they're sort of hidden gems, I would say. Mm. They are, you say they're not like country houses, but they, they do often seem to be quite substantial properties for what might have been quite a small parish that seemed to be room for, you know, the, the rector, his wife, a few children and a few servants as well. Well, they that, varied. The, the truth is they varied enormously. And this is very well um, portrayed by Trollope in his novels, because it in the old days, um, different parishes had different endowments to do with the, the amount of glebe land they could uh, get and tithe they could collect. Yeah. And so some were super rich. I mean, some of them used to earn um, 10,000 a year in 1840, which is like earning, um, you know, several million pounds now. Um, and some mm. used to be pretty well worthless. And so some of the clergy, because you, they would take the income, were absolutely on the on the take, really. I mean, they had the most extraordinary um, luck. And it was often to do with being the, the squire's younger son or something like that. Mm. And... And but then there would be the people like um, I think he's called Mr. Crawley in Trollope, um, the perpetual curate of Ho of Hogglestock, who's doing the work for a hundred quid a year, um, yeah. while the uh, <laughs> um, uh, uh, um, the grander fellows doing very little for much more. So yeah. the consequences are great architectural distinctions, um, and some, particularly in Wales, are charmingly modest, and some are in particularly in England are sort of preposterously grand. And there's a, there's a great range between yeah. between that. Now we come on to your sixth wonder, um, which again is uh, uh, one that well, perhaps marks you out as your political thinking uh, pretty firmly. Well, yes, uh, Margaret Thatcher. Um, it's true that um, I would be broadly sympathetic to Mrs Thatcher's uh, politics, but actually I think people on the left often uh, regard Margaret Thatcher as a wonder of the world um, because, uh, and it, Tony Benn used to say it, and so did Arthur Scargill, that... Um, uh, why can't we have somebody who stands up for our side as well as mm. she does for hers? Yes. So what they were acknowledging was a really remarkable, and I think this is the key point, there's nothing really to do with whether you agree with her or not, a really, really remarkable character and a really, really remarkable leader. And, of course, in the context of the time, and still now, actually, a very, very remarkable woman. Mm. Um, uh, and um, these seem to me undeniable, even if you can't stand her. And that's the sort of wonder of it. That's that's why it's really very extraordinary. Yes. And because I because I wrote the um, authorized biography and therefore spent an enormous twenty two years. And um, I mean, not all all not all not all that time, of course, because mm. I was still a journalist. But um, and was the first person to see vast vast numbers of documents. I got a very strong sense of of how she did this, both mm. how she got to the top and how she stayed at the top and how she worked and how she thought about things. And it is a very, very extraordinary story. There's no doubt about it. And her, not least of it, her unbelievable diligence. So um, mm. her mastery of detail without losing sight of the big picture is unique, definitely unique. And, um, and so is her capacity to change the sort of language and agenda of uh, issues. And so was her innovation both in policy and in presence, physical and human presence, because of taking advantage of being the first really important woman in... I mean, there were some important ones before, but the first really, really important woman in British politics. Yeah. And therefore, make it being totally distinctive. And that's... Um, this is, uh, to me, fascinating, and I think it is a wonder of the world, actually. 
Well, I take your point, uh, saying that uh, whether you're for or against her, uh, she made an impact because uh, often when things are discussed nowadays, uh, she'll either be given the credit for having done something all those years ago or the blame for the yes. way things are. Or both. Um, yeah, uh, and um, about, yes, uh, and um, and indeed, right now this is very germane because of the, we're suddenly getting back to strikes again. Yes, and um, she got strikes down from twenty two point two million working days in nineteen seventy nine to one point eight million working days in nineteen ninety, and we're yeah. just creeping back up to the to the latter figure. Yeah. Well, the whole time since then, as a result of her changes, the strikes have been unbelievably low. But just in terms of let's say limited to post-war prime ministers. I mean, to, to be brutally frank, I mean, brutally about them, uh, some just come and go and they, they hardly have left an, uh, a footprint in the sand. But I suppose, I mean, am I lit? You'd know better than I would, but I would say you've, you've got to give credit to Adley and to Thatcher and to Blair, each of whom had their effect in uh, in different ways. And where would you rank? Well, I'd, a, a, would you agree with that as the, the three that you would... Uh, pick out from the post and where would you put her in the context of those three um, I, I would agree with that though I might give a little honourable mention to Macmillan as well um, yes. and um, but I would and I think the, the those three are all very important um, but you see what she had was um, the qualities of Attlee and of Blair so Attlee was uncharismatic but very determined to achieve certain things and Blair was charismatic, but not that interested in what he actually did. Um, and, um, and she had the charisma and the determination to achieve certain things. So, and I think that makes her more successful than either of the two you've mentioned, um, though they were in many ways successful. And this is shown by the fact that she kept on winning elections. So she had more time even than Blair to do things. She was at the top for 11 and a half years, quite un absolutely unparalleled in the un um, yeah. age of universal suffrage. And... Um, that made her capacity to bring about change, for better or for worse, unique. Mm. Um, and that itself is a remarkable thing. Well, would you say, I mean, I, this is not to praise or criticise her, but she was in some senses lucky uh, because she had two things going in her favour. Uh, early on in her career as Prime Minister, the Falklands War came along. Now, if it hadn't come along, possibly she wouldn't have won the next election. If the war had been lost, which it must have come quite close to being, uh, she'd have been finished. And then she had the Labour Party dividing itself uh, while she was in power. And again, that that, that played into her hands. Um, now, that, that you know, you're not in control of that sort of thing, necessarily, as Prime Minister. Do, do you see what I'm Well, uh, absolutely, that all, um, you know, the best image of, of politics is... Um, uh, one given by Michael Oakeshott, which is that your um, even the best leader is is not very powerful because they're like the captain of a ship, um, where the most powerful thing is the sea, mm. and um, and you know if there's a really big storm, you can be the best captain in the world, and that's that. Mm. Um, uh, so that's true, but um, and Mrs. Thatcher certainly had some luck, but I believe that only she could have won the Falklands War. I don't think any other male politician, any male politician would have taken it on. Um, and I also think that the re you talk about the Labour Party being in a mess with Michael Foote, perfectly true. But she knew how to exploit that. She knew, she could see how they didn't understand her. And yes. um, what the Labour Party did, and Tony Blair is very strong on this. I've talked to him about it a lot. He told me a lot about it. He thought the Labour Party could only graduate to power if it could recognise the immense achievements of Margaret Thatcher. And he said it's no good Neil Kinnock or Michael Foote just saying how wicked Margaret Thatcher is. They have to show, the public are not interested in that, they have to show that they would do better than her. And, um, and, and they can only do that, said Blair, paradoxically, if they will accept that she's done quite a lot of good things. And he completely right about that. And that's why one of the reasons he won. He incorporated a lot of uh, Thatcher. And um, so I think she was very instrumental in the weakness of the Labour Party in her era. Uh, now, you wrote uh, Margaret Thatcher's biography. Um, I, I, I mean, I don't think you've done a lot of biographies, but a lot of people write biographies of historical figures and they, they, they come to them entirely through their papers and or what was written out about them by other people. Of course, you uh, would have met Margaret Thatcher and had dealings with her uh, quite a lot in her, her lifetime. Uh, did your opinion of her change once you got into the papers and doing the research? Um, well, it didn't 
perhaps fundamentally changed, but it altered in some respects. Um, perhaps two I would mention. One is that I understood better why, why um, how incredibly difficult she could be. Um, mm. And I didn't actually suffer from this personally very much, but I did understand why people like Jeffrey Howe and Nigel Lawson and let alone Michael Heseltine were sort of driven mad by mm. her. Um, partly just because she was still hanging around when they were longing to get power themselves, but also because she's a bit like that nursery rhyme or what it's a story about, you know, I'll do it myself, says the little red hen. She mm. would, she would um, accumulate things to herself and she found it very difficult to share with colleagues. And also she was no respecter of person, so she would be much politer to the um, junior person than the senior person, which was very, very upsetting for the senior person. <laughs> and actually quite difficult for the junior person sometimes because that made the senior person hate the junior person. Um, so that's important, I think. And the other thing, though, was that I was even more impressed by her in, in this sense that I understood better how unbelievably difficult it had been for her to get to the top as a woman. Mm -hmm. the, the, the loneliness and the sacrifice of working your way up for 25 years within the Conservative Party was absolutely amazing. And mm -hmm. right the way through, even to the end, she was still being patronised and uh, excluded. She never really got to know the House of Commons because it was so male. What about the... And you, know, you all know the criticism of her. I'm sure you've... Uh dealt with this a lot but you know she what brought her down i suppose more than was her stubbornness she stuck she stuck with uh, the poll tax policy even though uh, everyone was throwing brickbats at her but throughout when her uh, she would call it i suppose successful period of time there was a the hardness to her that uh, meant she could contemplate you know mining villages being closed or policies of deindustrialization uh, what gave her the, the strength, if that's the right word for that, as opposed to, I don't know, somebody like Michael Heselon or Edward Heath or somebody would have probably balked at some of those uh, those harsh decisions? Well, actually, I think, funnily enough, Heseltine might not have, but he Heath would. Um, but I don't really agree with the hardness point. You see, if you she looked at uh, the, the moral... She was a very moral person, interested in morality, but she looked at it in a different way. So what she saw with a miners' strike was, remember, there was never a ballot for the miners' strike. So um, yeah. what she saw was an extreme left uh, Arthur Scargill who was trying to overthrow the elected government, which was true. He was. He even said he was. Um, and trying to force miners to, to go on strike and lose their earnings and their work, whereas she, in her view, had a plan to um, uh, make the mining industry more rational and in particular, she was very, very concerned about the working miners, those who continued to work because there was no ballot, and they were very annoyed with Scargill. And they, even at the beginning of the strike, they were about 30% of the, uh, the, the workforce, and they, and they rose as the strike went on. And she hated the violence and intimidation that they suffered and their wives suffered from Scargill's thugs. And so um, uh, she saw this as a moral battle. It wasn't a sort of oh, it doesn't matter what happens to these people um, because I'm going to do what I want to do. Not at all. It was, a, in her view, it was the right people winning against the bad and extreme people. So you may disagree with that, but I think one has to respect that as a motive. She's not, she wasn't callous. She was tough, not the same mm. thing. Well, yes, I put it in, in tough terms, but I, I think callous is the word that uh, other people would use. Because if you're in a mining village and you're the wife of a miner and having to find food for your children, the fact that the dispute is about whether um, Scargill took the vote or not is it well, no, fades no, no, into it, the background, doesn't it? No, it isn't, because one of somebody's got to win. Mm. He started the dispute, and um, and if he won, it would have been catastrophic for the whole country and indeed for... Um, actually, for a lot of miners. So I think, um, you know, she understood the importance of sticking by something that you um, believe to be important, and she carefully planned to resist the Scargill onslaught, and she, she didn't relish it, but she did have to do it. Prime Minister, are you and the Coal Board insisting on a written surrender by Mr Scargill before any talks about the coal strike can begin? No. I think what we're insisting on having been through seven rounds of talks already, is a clear basis on which the talks can start. There are a lot of people interested in these talks. I'm anxious that if they're entered into, they should be a success. We've got the interest of the working miners to consider, 78,000 of them. We mustn't let them down. They haven't let the industry down.
All right, so that's that's your sixth wonder. We've got one final wonder to do, which is uh, uh, perhaps less controversial than Margaret Thatcher. Uh, what, what's your final wonder? Well, I don't know if it is less controversial. Breakfast, um, <laughs> uh, about which people feel very strongly. And yeah. the reason breakfast uh, interests me, apart from a great love of all meals, um, uh, is that um, it's so different. So all its etiquette and rules at the opposite of other meals. Um, so if you had the, at the same lunch every day, it's considered to show that you're extremely weird. And Dominic Raab, for example, is accused of always having the same uh, lunch every day from <laughs> Pret-a-Manger. Um, it's it's yeah. always considered that he should be dismissed from office because of this. Whereas yeah. um, we're all perfectly happy to eat the same breakfast every day. And um, I have a special little variation because I spend most of my nights in Sussex and one or two in London. So when yeah. I'm in London, I daringly go out to a cafe and have porridge, which I don't have at home. Otherwise, I eat exactly the same thing um, every day for breakfast. And I yeah. think most people do that. And also, um, and that's somehow very soothing. It's a very soothing meal, I find, if you've got a, certainly if you've got enough time. And yes. I take a lot of time over it because I use it to read the papers and catch up with what's going on. Um, and... Um, uh, uh, it's therefore also not necessarily, and indeed not usually, sociable. So on the whole, um, lunch is a, is a time when you talk to people and supper is a time to either family or colleagues or whatever. And um, breakfast, it's entirely understood that you, the most you would do is grunt and ask for something to be passed to you. I, I, this is a theory of mine, is that it's also, it's a sort of patriotic meal uh, in that uh, for most people in Britain, if you go out for a meal at lunchtime or in the evening, you'll almost certainly want to go to, it might be an Italian restaurant, Indian restaurant, a Chinese restaurant. You'll eat what people around the world who go to restaurants eat in restaurants. And you might as a variant think of some quaint British thing. But if you uh, are in an international hotel and breakfast is all laid out, British people will naturally go for, it might be porridge, it might be toast, it might be bacon and egg, but they won't go and have a piece of Dutch cheese or whatever else. Uh, no, I, think you're, and French. I think it's a very, a very good theory. Though it's slightly um, <laughs> uh, pricked by the croissant. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, but, well, it's um, a bit like accepting uh, hops, you know. We've well, yeah. It's taken a few years, and we yes. now and like of course, it's the only, well. it's, it is the only meal where you, you, English is a form of advertisement. So you say the, the full English breakfast. You wouldn't say the full English lunch or the full no. English dinner, would you? No. <laughs> um, so uh, yes, yeah. Mm. No, you're right about that. And um, and like a lot of full English things, it actually depends on masses of things that come from the rest of the world, like tea, yeah. coffee, uh, yes. <laughs> oranges. Well, <laughs> well, of course. Um, I um, Look, uh, Charles, I've taken a long time, uh, more than I was expecting to do, but I've got dragged you into more and more conversation. Obviously, my, my wonder of the world uh, is uh, anything that would rid me of this sore throat, <laughs> uh, but I haven't got it yet. So uh, what I have to do is to uh, thank you, for sharing your seven wonders with me, but I have to choose the wonder of wonders from your list of seven, the one which struck me as particularly wonderful as you described it on this uh, podcast. And um, I think it's been quite difficult. I, I, I had in mind to be controversial. I would go for one of your more controversial ones to mark it out on our list. But then I thought no breakfast would be... Um, um, be the most charming but I think I'll go of, of your seven I think I'll go with the Fleet Street because I have a sort of uh, nostalgic idea of what Fleet Street the street was like uh, having uh, you know worked uh, near there and uh, an improved Fleet Street surviving maybe online uh, with proper reporting <laughs> with a bit of American flat fact checking as well I'll, I'll put, make that your wonder of wonders which I think goes with you and your uh, career as well thank you Clive thanks get well soon if you enjoyed this episode of My 7 Wonders, it would be wonderful if you could rate and review us on Apple, Spotify or wherever you found us. Thank you for listening. My 7 Wonders with Clive Anderson is a Stack production in association with Alaska TV and powered by the Acast Creator Network.